You guys know uh, one of the best known stories in the New Testament is the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We're not actually going to park there, but I want to use this as, as an opening introduction or illustration to the theme this morning. And you know, the setting of Luke 15 is Jesus is hanging out with the wrong kind of crowd with tax collectors and sinners, and so the Pharisees are calling him on it. And so he responds to them by telling them three stories, three stories about something that was lost and then was found. You've got a lost sheep, you've got a lost coin, and you've got a lost son. Now, of course, in the, in the story of the parable, it's the son that's doing all the losing. You remember that Junior wants to live the kind of lifestyle that he's not free to at home. So he asked Dad for his inheritance early, and this sounds bad to us, but this was terrible. This was leaving his father, his family. This was kind of like renouncing all that he was, all that he had, all of his identity. He takes the money and runs, and he goes to the distant country, and he whoops it up, and he lives the wild lifestyle that he wanted to until, of course, the money's gone. And then he's languishing and starving with the pigs, when his senses return, and you remember he, he thinks, gosh, if I was even a slave or a servant in my father's house, I'd have more than enough to eat. He comes to his senses, and so he's going to go home, and he figures, you know, it's kind of with his tail between his legs, and he'll ask dad if he can be a servant in his house so that he can have enough to eat. This is going to require something on his father's part, though, of course. It's going to require his father to be gracious enough to forgive him, even to bring him back as a servant. So Junior heads home, and of course, Dad's there watching and waiting and receives him. And when he comes up, you know, Junior can't get his confession out because Dad is hugging him and weeping on his neck. And he won't hear anything about having him back as a servant. He's going to restore him extravagantly as his son. So he brings the best clothes He brings the gold ring. He throws the extravagant, lavish banquet to celebrate his son's homecoming. Junior's coming back, not as a servant, but as a son. The story is as much and more about the father's graciousness as it is the prodigal. We call it the prodigal son, but it's it's actually a three-pointed story. It is about the two brothers and the father. But I want to focus this morning on It required the grace of the Father to receive the Son back. And that's the focus or the emphasis I want to take this morning. How do you think the prodigal felt when he realized that he was not only forgiven, but given back his sonship status? You remember he's hoping to go back. He's hoping forgiveness will mean he can be a slave or a servant. And instead, he's made a full son again. You remember he's already spent his inheritance. But he doesn't, he's not welcome back as a servant, but as a son. What do you think his view of his father was after this, after he's come back and restored? What do you think his view of his father is after this? I wonder how he looked at the future knowing how extravagant the grace of his father was already demonstrated towards him in receiving him back. He was given what he couldn't earn. He was forgiven a debt he couldn't repay and he faced a life ahead in his father's house underwritten by his father's grace, favor, and forgiveness. What do you think his view of his father was and his view of the future was based on knowing his father in this gracious way? If you're a Christian, you are 
a coin found and a sheep rescued and a son restored. What does it look like for you? If you're a Christian, I know most of you are. If you're a Christian, what does it look like to be the lost son in your father's house restored and the recipient of his grace and his mercy and forgiveness? What does that look like? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to stroll through some passages in Romans and we're going to scratch the scratch of the surface on this subject about God's grace. God's grace. You know, if you look in the back of your Bible at a concordance or if you look in an exhaustive concordance, this this grace is a pretty important theme. And we could take weeks and weeks and weeks just talking about this theme alone. So we're scratching the scratch of the surface on this topic. But I want to raise it because I think it's important. In fact, I'm convinced we can't live life well or successfully or in a way that honors God if we're short in this area of, of having some grasp, some comprehension of God's grace. And to begin with, let me define a term. Uh, when you read the term grace in your New Testament, it's probably the Greek charis. And this is the definition of charis or grace, the state of kindness and favor towards someone. It's a benefit given to an object. Grace is a gift or a benefit. Grace is a credit. That is, it's something given that wasn't earned. It could be words of kindness. It's thanks and blessing. It's oftentimes provision or enablement. Uh, a similar word that you'll read, uh, charisma. You know, if you heard the term from uh, 1 Corinthians, if you're thinking about spiritual gifts and you hear the term charismatic, charisma simply means a grace gift. It's a grace gift, charisma, same root, it's a gift, it's something that's been given that you didn't earn, it's just something that was given to you. Grace is, it's God's favor. It's the undeserved benefits He gives us. Grace is God's good gifts to us. There's tons of them, that's God's grace. It's the enablement He gives us for the difficulties we face in life. Grace enables us to shed worries and anxieties for peace and joy. Grace removes the load from our backs and enables us to walk freely. So as we're reading through these passages, grace is God's favor. It's His unmerited favor. It's His undeserved gifts to us. It's His enablements to us. When Paul begins Romans in verse 7, he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you look up all Paul's epistles, you'll see the same introduction. In all of these epistles, before he addresses them on any other subject, before he explains any doctrine or tells them how to live or opens anything else up to them, he always starts with this, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, from the get-go, As soon as he starts talking to them, it's with the presupposition that they are recipients of God's grace. The place Paul starts with them is that you are already the objects of God's affection, His grace, His unmerited favor. That's where you start with God and that's where all of Paul's epistles start. Same place. When you get to the end of Paul's 16 chapters, guess how he ends? In chapter 16, verse 20, "...the the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you." 
He begins with God's grace. He says, you've got it. And then when he signs off, he commends them to God's grace, which they already have. He begins the letter with grace. He ends the letter with grace. And if you're a Christian, your life and mine is just like this epistle. You begin with God's grace. You end with God's grace. And everything else in between is filled with God's grace. When you and I are justified, you know that for God to be able to pour out His favor on you, He had to overcome a problem, that is our sin. Uh, God is loving and kind and compassionate, but He's also just. And so He can't just show His favor when there's this sinful condition that's got to be taken care of. For God to justify us, to say that we're righteous, we're in right standing with Him again, He had to take care of that problem. He did that in Christ, in His death on the cross, for us, in our place, and then His resurrection. So with that provision out of the way, with the means of our justification taken care of, God can begin dispensing this grace. So in Romans 3.24, Paul says this, that we are justified as a gift by His grace. We are justified, declared in right standing before God, as a gift by God's grace. There's another well-known passage in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that says the same thing. You know, oftentimes if you talk to someone and you're not sure if they're a Christian or not, the key question to ask is, if you died today, where would you go and why? And if they say anything except, Jesus Christ, I'm going to heaven because Christ died for my sins, then they're not sure about this justified by grace thing. And you can help them. If we entertain any thought that we have any right standing before God apart from the righteousness of Christ freely given to us by God's grace, we're in the wrong ballpark. We're in the wrong game. And I'm telling you, if you just ask casually in the conversations you have with people, ask them if you're unsure or if you can in conversation, if you died today, where are you going and why? Anything short of Jesus died for my sins, they're confused on this issue. You and I are justified freely by God's grace. We don't work up to this. We can't get it if we do work. We're imperfect and all we bring to God is our imperfection. Paul says we're justified freely by His grace. That's how we get into this grace arena in the first place. Justified freely by God's grace. Going to chapter 5, and I think most of the verses we're going to read this morning will be in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Having been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've been justified by grace, and now we're ushered into a grace in which we stand. I love this phrase, grace is the arena that we live in. Grace is the air we breathe, it's the water we drink, it's the medium in which we live. God's grace is what we stand in, it's what we live in. All of your life is surrounded by God's grace. You stand in God's grace. You start life justified freely by His grace, and then this grace becomes something you stand in, you live in it. It'd be like if you're swimming at the pool. Grace is the water you're surrounded by. It's everywhere. It's around you. It's over you. 
you're introduced to God's family by grace. And then grace also overwhelms the obstacles in your life and mine. You know, preeminently the obstacles we face are sin and death. And so Paul talks about that in Romans 5. He says in verse 15, If by the transgression of the one, and a lot of chapter 5 is this comparison between Adam and what we get from him, that's sin and death, and Jesus, the second Adam, the one we derive our second life from, our born-again life from, and what we get from that. So Paul says, if by the transgression of one, Adam, many died, all died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace by the man, Christ Jesus, abound to many. Paul says, if you look at Adam, Adam transgressed and he gave death to all. But more than that, God's grace abounded to the many. If you look around, the benefits of what we got from Adam, they look like they're total sin and death. That's what we get. But compared to the totality of what we get in Adam's sin and death, Paul says much more even than that, God's grace has abounded to us. Much more than what looks like the total negative benefit we get through our first father, Adam, God's grace abounds even more so in life and grace to us. If you look at verses 16 and 17, Paul says, The gift, that is our justification, our eternal life, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, not what we got from Adam. On the one hand, judgment arose from transgression, resulting in condemnation. That's what we get in Adam. But on the other hand, the free gift, and free gift here in Greek is the charisma, the grace gift. The gift we didn't deserve, the gift we didn't earn, the grace gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17, If by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. If you look around the world today, sin and death reign. You and I will all die. Death still reigns over our mortal bodies. And if you look in the world and just think about the new sin and death reign all over. Murder, death, disease, physical ailments, you name it. Sin and death still reign. Paul says much more than the rule or the reign even of sin and death, which looks total, much more God's grace is so overwhelming, the abundance of His grace is so great that you and I are taken out of this position of being subject to sin and death. And we're raised up to the glorious heights of reigning with Jesus Christ over the universe through eternity. God's grace is so big that it takes losers who are dead. And it not only gives them life, but it raises them up higher than creatures could ever have aspired to. God's grace abounds more than sin, makes us co-rulers with Jesus Christ. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Paul's looking back historically and, you know, sin was always sin. Sin always brought death. But then God gave Israel the law through Moses. And when they get the law, it articulates deficiency. So if I wasn't sure about something before, I've got the law now to tell me that's sin and that's deficient. 
So now I realize I thought I was bad before, but the law comes and I realize I'm worse than I thought. There's more sin in me than I realized. Sin increased, sin abounded. But Paul says here, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You can't, in a sense, out-sin God's grace. I'll talk more about this in a minute. It's just that God's purposes are not thwarted by sin. God's purposes, His grace, overwhelms sin and death. It's like if you make sandcastles on the beach at the ocean, what does the wave do to it? It just washes it away. Sin is like the sandcastle. You and I play around with some things. We put some sandcastles up, some deficient elements of our life, and the power of God's wave just rolls in and wipes them out. doesn't matter how big a sandcastle you build. The power of the ocean and the waves just overwhelms them. Well, when sin increased, or when sin increases today, it doesn't shut down God's grace. It doesn't thwart His grace or His plan. His grace is like the tidal wave of the ocean. It sweeps everything away in front of it. doesn't diminish His plan in the least. Verse 21, As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The family life you and I are called to, the kingdom living we're called into, is characterized by grace. Grace is all about what we get. It's the kind of life we're called into through Christ. And finally, in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, same word, charisma, the undeserved gift God gave us is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I enjoy our sins forgiven, restoration of life with God by God's grace. God favors us. He provides freely for our justification. Justification, our being brought back into life with Christ, was entirely free to us but costly to God because if you think about it, uh, God's grace to us costs Jesus His life. This is the flip side, which we'll just mention briefly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked decades ago about what he called cheap grace. You know, in a sense, there is no such thing as cheap grace. Any grace God displays or shows was infinitely costly to God. In our own minds, we may think it's not a big deal, but it's infinitely costly to God because it cost Jesus His life. It cost the Father and the Son separation when Jesus became sin on our behalf on the cross. So grace is always infinitely costly to God. It's free to us. Bonhoeffer was talking when he mentioned cheap grace about a view we have that we presume upon the grace of God. But I think in the end, if we entertain that mentality that uh, I'll sin because grace is no big deal and God will forgive me anyway, we really don't understand grace at all. Because the cost for the grace was Christ's death. So if we understand the cost of grace, we understand how costly it was to God. That should elicit from us this desire to say thank you to God. And that's what Bonhoeffer was getting at. Grace is infinitely costly to God, free to us. For us to understand God's grace, we have to understand something about what it cost Him. The cost wasn't borne by us. 
It was born by God, but it was still costly. God's grace is costly. And if we don't understand this, there's no way we can live life well. On one hand, you presume on God's grace and you say, God will always forgive me, so I'll do whatever I please. You don't appreciate the cost of God's grace in the first place. But on the flip side, there are people who don't understand how all-encompassing God's grace is. And so they tend to live lives that are devoid of the understanding that God's grace surrounds them. They started with grace. They live in grace. They'll finish with grace. And so they work for what God's already provided. If you get this wrong on either side, you can't live life well or appropriately or successfully. One cheapens grace in the sense of, I don't appreciate what God's grace costs. But the other one, I don't appreciate the value of the grace because I'm working to provide what God already did provide, what I could never earn myself anyway. It's all about God's grace. We're saved by His grace. We stand, we live, we breathe, we swim in God's grace. God's grace overwhelms sin and death in your life and mine. When sin increases, God's grace just increases all the more. And God's kingdom is characterized by grace, by favor, by enablement, by giving us what we don't deserve. This is the life you and I enter through justification. It's the life we live all our lives and it's the way our lives here on earth end. If you were around a year and a half ago, you may remember a teaching about uh, a life of intentionality and, in a sense, effort, hard work. We talked about uh, the fact that most people who claim that they're Christians live lives indistinguishable from the culture around us. Do you remember this? This was an introduction to the book of Malachi. But the illustration was this. Uh, life, the culture around us, is a stream going downstream, and we're supposed to be like the Pacific salmon. And the salmon's got to be intentional about swimming upstream or he can't accomplish the goal of his life. So with great intention, with great effort, with great focus, the salmon's got to swim upstream all the way. If he quits swimming, what happens? He becomes flotsam and jetsam going down. To be successful, the salmon's got to swim upstream all the way. And we said basically the bottom line was we want to live lives that are counterculture. We don't want to go with the flow of the culture around us. And so we want to live a life of intention. And that requires work on our part to live intentionally against the flow of the culture. I say this just so I'm not confusing when I use a similar analogy this morning. Let me say that living a life of grace could be like taking a canoe or a kayak and putting it on that same stream. So this time, instead of the salmon swimming upstream, a life of grace could be characterized as sitting in a canoe or a kayak going downstream. You guys know if you sit on a lake in a canoe, you sit there. There's no stream. There's no current. You sit there. If you go anyplace, it's all your work. You've got the oar. You're paddling hard. You're getting wherever you go based on your work, your effort. But if you're a canoe or a kayak in a stream, as soon as you're in the water, you're off. You can use your oars, you can steer a little bit here or there, you can slow down, you can speed up. But it's the power of the current of the stream that's carrying you along. That's the force, the power that's carrying you along. You're not doing it. It's the power of something, someone else. Now, if you're on a stream that has white water, and you're maybe not in one of those rubber rafts, you're in a canoe, maybe an old birch canoe, you don't want to bang your canoe up. So when you get to the white water, what do you do? You take that canoe out of the water. And you portage, you carry that canoe and whatever's in it over ground near the stream 
until you get to that navigable water again. Then you put back in. See, you're only out of the stream as long as you have to be. Then you're right back in. You and I, if we're living, in my mind, what I think a grace-filled, grace-informed life, we're the canoe or in the canoe on the stream. That is, we recognize the energy, the purpose, the gifts, the ability, the enablement to live life well is all God's doing. We sit in a canoe, we steer our oars a little bit, but it's God's power, His grace, His energy that's getting us where we're going. The trouble with many of us is we're carrying a canoe on land. Life is a portage. We've got a canoe, but we're not in the water. So we're carrying this weight on our back. And it means we're keeping rules, we're working hard. You know, I'm responsible, I'm going to do it right. And I take that canoe that's meant for the water and I carry it on my back across the land and I wonder why life is so hard. And you know, this, what happens is this makes us Pharisees. You remember back to Luke 15, the Pharisees see Jesus with the wrong crowd of people because they don't keep the rules right. When you and I live life like this where we're carrying the canoe on our back, we become Pharisees because you see, then it becomes all about us. It becomes my strength to carry my load, the rules I keep, the exterior compliance with God's rules or with the law or with New Testament teaching or with whatever you want to fill in there. It becomes all about me. The effort's all mine. And it makes Pharisees out of us because it can't do anything else. This is not the life God calls us to. We want to be in the stream of His grace, carried by His strength, His gifts, His enablements, and we do a little bit of steering along the way. Otherwise, we become like the people asking Jesus, why are you hanging out with those losers? The next time you face a crisis, this could be tomorrow, it could be today. The next time you face a a crisis, most of us, we get this immediate angst, this adrenaline rush. And all of a sudden, we're asking ourselves, how am I going to solve this problem? What am I going to do? The next time that happens, and it'll probably be soon, before you let that angst carry you away, just stop and say, God, how in your grace do you mean to provide for this situation? God, I'm not going to carry my own canoe across ground. I know that you've already provided for this. Uh, I love an old quote by Watchman Nee. I've I've read it in the context of other teachings. But he said, uh, this is not verbatim, clearly. But he said, you'll face these crises in your life and your first thought is to rise up and somehow work up the energy or the strategy or whatever to take care of it. And he says, you've already lost. He says, what you've got to do is come out of the arena and say to God, Lord, thanks that the enemies plotted this thing to bring about my downfall, but you've already provided for it, and I thank you for your provision, and I just wait to see what it is. That's the attitude we should have. God, I recognize that in this life that I'm in, on the stream of life, you've already provided the power, the current, the gifts, the enablements. For whatever comes my way, Lord, how do you mean to take care of this problem? I'm yours, and I'm relying on you and your grace and your gifts to see me through. Don't be like the canoeer carrying the weight on his back on the dry ground when God says, get in the stream and let me carry you where I want to get you. That's grace. Grace is us sitting in the canoe being carried downstream by God's power and God's grace. 
you know, back to the prodigal, you know the story didn't end with the party, right? Because there's the other element of the story, the element Jesus wanted to finish on for his friends, the Pharisees. The story ends with the older brother, of course. What happens? Well, of course, the older brother saw the party going on, and he didn't like what he saw. He didn't like dad's lavish grace and forgiveness poured out on baby brother. Why was that, do you think? I'd say it's probably because he knew nothing of God's grace himself. You remember when he comes up to his dad, what does he say? Basically, he says, Dad, I've kept your rules. I've carried the canoe. I've kept the law. Dad, I've worked hard. You didn't throw me a party. But this guy, now you throw a party for him, what gives? And Dad says, basically, son, you don't get it. He says, everything I have is yours. It always has been. You want a party? You can have it. You need something else? Take it. It's yours. The older brother had absolutely no grasp of the graciousness of his own father. He didn't know his dad. So he thinks it's all about him. I think he went to synagogue on the Sabbath. I think he tithed. I think if he was here today, he'd be in church on Sunday and he'd be doing all the right things. And from the outside, he'd look pretty good, like many Christians do. The trouble is on the inside, he's devoid of the knowledge of the grace of God. And so a relationship with God is all about him working hard. He doesn't know his father. And he doesn't know his father's grace. And he doesn't understand the dynamics of life in his father's family because he doesn't know his dad is a gracious, loving, giving parent. And that if he had been the younger brother, his dad would be pouring out on him the same lavish restoration, forgiveness, and grace that he was pouring out on Junior, on baby brother. Are you a younger brother? You know, in a, in a way, of course, if you're a Christian, you are. Uh, because the younger brother is, is the coin that was found, the sheep that was rescued, and the son that was restored to life. If you're a Christian, you are the younger brother. I guess the question becomes, do you realize the grace you get as the one who's been restored to your father? Or do you, do you and I live like the older brother? And guys, this is the funny thing to me. If I had a choice between living life wildly like a pagan, having fun, which I did for a while, or being a religious prig, which one would you choose? I mean, I can tell you for me the choice would not be hard. I'd have fun. And I think I could make a good case for it. And when Jesus, you know in the New Testament, His most scathing words are not for sinners and they're not for the prodigals. They're for the older brothers. And for the, they're for the people who claim a form of godliness, Paul says later, but deny its power. You know, frankly, give me joyful sinners. I'd rather hang out with joyful sinners than religious prigs and older brothers. One is a lie. Religious people devoid of the knowledge of God's grace are a lie. They're a contradiction. Freewheeling pagans are honest at some level. I'd take the honesty. Jesus is hanging out in Luke 15 with the honest sinners. He is reproving the religious hypocrites. So I'm just asking you this morning, because frankly, you guys, you know, I tend, we all, we're faced with these decisions we make all the time. What kind of a person am I? 
And we, we are faced with this temptation to pretend to be something we are not. More righteous than we are. More successful than we are. We revert to the status of older brothers. What a lousy way to live. There's a very popular book written just a few years ago called Blue Like Jazz. I don't know how many of you read it. I think Bill's reading it. That's a Christian, and he basically indicts religious Christians for hypocrisy. And of course, the trouble is there's a lot to indict. And he makes the case for an honest level of Christianity that reflects reality. We talked a couple weeks ago about being authentic as Christians and as a church. And that's where we want to land. I'm making up as if choices, our choice is not to live as religious prigs or to live uh, improperly with happy pagans, obviously. That's not, what, that's not the choice God's giving us. But those are the extremes. And, and we tend towards one or the other. In the Blue Like Jazz, he's basically making the, the case, why don't we live authentic lives? Let's confess where we fall short of the mark. Let's be honest. Let's be real. Basically, I'd say in the end, let's recognize the degree to which we are all dependent on the grace of God. You and I begin with God's grace. You can't get in His family without it. And then His grace is like the ocean you and I live in and swim in. It's the air we breathe. And it's His grace that closes our life out at the end of the go and that welcomes us into His family and the celebration in eternity. Here's another thought for you. We've got a four-month-old puppy, Jordy. And if you come into our kitchen, you know what? She presumes on your grace. She thinks you want to see her. And she'll lick you. And she might try and hop up on you. And she'll wag her backside because she knows you want to see her. She's the center of the world. She, in a, there's, this, there's this great thought, and I, I wish, a tail wagging aside maybe, that I could emulate a little bit of what she assumes. Life is good and you love me. You want me to lick you. You want me to lay in your lap. You want to play with me. I'm the center of your universe. You know, there's a happy attitude to take out of that puppy. That's something of the element God wants us to have towards Him. We have His favor. He can't love you any more fully than He already does. He can't favor you any more fully than He already has. It's cost Him His Son. It's the most costly thing He can give you, His grace, His forgiveness. That's where you start. It's where you live. It's how you end. God's grace. When you lay your head on your pillow tonight, thank God for His grace. And then when you get up tomorrow morning, before any of the trials or the troubles or the pressure or the stress of life starts, thank God that His grace has already made provision for you and whatever comes up in that day. And when a trial or a trouble or that anxious feeling comes up or rattles in your mind, before you get all worked up and try and figure everything out, just stop and say, God, how in your grace have you already provided for this? I'm in my canoe. Show me how to steer, but I'm relying on you and your power, your gifts, your grace, your giving, your provision for the situations I'm facing today. Paul says, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a gift. It's not from ourselves. It's from God. That's the grace that we start with. It's the grace we live with. It's the grace we end with. Let's pray.
Lord, I know that to live life in any way that reflects the truth, we have to have some constant awareness and knowledge of your grace to us. Lord, that it's by your grace that we're saved, that it's your grace that gives us every breath and every good gift, Lord. It's your grace that makes provision for trouble we don't know yet exists. Father, I'm asking you to help us to live a tail-wagging, happy life that reflects the knowledge of your goodness poured out in Christ on us. Father, help us not live lives of hypocritical religious older brothers. Lord, help us not to err like Junior in leaving your side, but help us to live in your house as those who know you and and at least know something, Lord, of your goodness and your grace, how costly it was, therefore how precious it is to us. Help us to live lives thankfully to you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.